0: Lee Atwater was a political consultant who had two ambitions in life that he wanted to achieve before his 40th birthday. The first was to manage a winning presidential campaign, and the other was to become the head of the Republican Party. In 1988, at the age of 37, his first dream came true when he successfully managed the political campaign of George Herbert Walker Bush in his bid for the White House. George H.W. Bush served as vice president to Ronald Reagan and was also the father to George W. Bush. For those of you who remember that election, his opponent was Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis, who he beat, by the way, by winning 40 of the 50 states. And then that Same year on election day, Atwater was asked to become the head of the Republican National Committee. He was a young, successful, ambitious, bright, powerful, and I've got to add, rabidly partisan individual. His approach to politics was take no prisoners, and he was determined to win at all costs. His aggressive campaign tactics that are almost mild by today's standards, aroused controversy at the time, but he knew how to win, and that was what mattered. But on March 5, 1990, as he was speaking at a Republican fundraising dinner, Atwater was stricken with a seizure that frightened him and those around him. He was taken by ambulance to a hospital where he was diagnosed with an inoperable terminal brain tumor. And his only hope was to undergo an aggressive treatment that had some terrible side effects. And within a year, he was dead. But you know the greatest change that came to Lee Atwater came when he was introduced to Jesus Christ that final year of his life. By a South Carolina politician and a man who had served as his political mentor, a man named Harry Dent. And also a man no doubt familiar to many of you named... Charles Coulson. Both of those men had served as special counselors to President Richard Nixon. And when Atwater became a Christian, it absolutely changed his life. In an article that was in the June 1991 issue of Reader's Digest, Atwater said, I've come a long way since the day I told George Bush that his kinder, gentler theme was a nice thought, but it wouldn't win us any votes. I used to say that the president might be kinder and gentler, but I wasn't going to be. How wrong I was. Because, you see, Lee Atwater went from a man who, in the words of his opponent, would run over his own grandmother to get a Republican elected to becoming a gracious, patient, loving, kind gentleman. After he became a Christian, he would apologize to Michael Dukakis for the naked cruelty of the 1988 presidential campaign. Atwater is a perfect example of what Jesus Christ can do in the heart and life of a person. Because his story is not alone. That's what Jesus Christ does when he comes into the heart and life of an individual and God's Spirit begins to reside within. He wants to change us. He wants to make us like Jesus Christ. He wants our lives to be like a basket full of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness. He wants to make us like Jesus Christ. Now, it's been about five or six weeks since we were last in the book of Galatians, so just for the benefit of you who may have forgotten, let me just take a moment and remind you about the background of the book. Galatians was written to Christians by the Apostle Paul who were in churches scattered around a province in ancient Roman world called Galatia. These people on Paul's first missionary journey heard the gospel and believed. They came to salvation. And their lives were transformed. They received the Holy Spirit. They were walking in the Spirit, enjoying the fullness of life in the Spirit. Until some false teachers came in who undermined what they had been taught and what they were now believing. Because they were told by these false teachers that to be saved from your sins, to enter the kingdom of God, to be forgiven, through faith alone in Christ is a lie. That's a falsehood. They said that salvation requires that you adhere to the laws of Moses. Namely, things like circumcision and rituals and festivals and feasts and ceremonies. They said, without adhering to those things, you cannot be saved. Well, they're teaching through the Christians there in Galatia into confusion and turmoil. So Paul wrote him a letter in which he said, you've become bewitched. The problem was that these people not only took the issue of justification into the area of falsehood, they also took the issue of sanctification down the wrong path. They said, if you're going to live a holy life, a victorious life that honors the Lord, you too have to follow this long, laborious list of legalistic regulations. And so these false teachers were threatening not only the truth of salvation, but also the truth of living a victorious Christian life. And when you come to chapter 5, which, as I suggested in the scripture reading, is really the highlight of the book, Paul deals with the issue of, of these Christians' sanctification. And the issue is simply this how can I become more like Jesus Christ? How can I have victory over sin? How can I walk in the way of blessing and in the power and fullness of the Spirit? And one of the most important lessons I believe that Paul is driving home in this passage, and one that's foundational for Christian living, is that the law, listen, rules, regulations cannot restrain the sinful nature because it has zero impact on the heart. Legalism does not restrain the flesh, the issue is not external behavior. To be sanctified, to live a victorious Christian life, you have to live by and in the power of the Spirit. And that, and that alone, is how you will defeat the desires of the flesh. And what Paul is doing in chapter 5 is he's talking about this conflict, this battle that is going on, even in the most pious and mature of Christians. Because you see sin... Still resides within each and every one of us. Sin is not dead. The old sin nature is still very active. And there's this battle taking place that you and I will experience till the grave. We are, in the words of theologians, simultaneously righteous and sinful. We have a new nature. We're a new creation, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. But that new nature is incarcerated in our remaining humanness. And there's a battle that's going on. And sadly, even Christians can have sin reign and dominate their lives. But what Paul is saying in chapter 5 is, it doesn't have to. We've been joined to Christ, and we can have victory over sin. Look again at verse 16. Your Bible should be open to Galatians 5. Again, just to remind you of some of these important truths, he says, what I, here's what I want you to do. I want you to walk by the Spirit. And when you do that, he says, you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. He says these two are, are in conflict with each other. And sometimes you find yourselves doing the things you don't want to do. He goes on in verse 19 and he says that the acts of the flesh are obvious. they are things like sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, and so on. And then very important, he says in verse 21, he says... I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this, those who have that as their habitual lifestyle, will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's not talking about a temporary lapse. We all have them. He's talking about a habitual lifestyle. But, in contrast to the sinful nature What Paul does in verses 22 through 23 is he paints a beautiful picture and portrait of what a Christ-like person looks like, acts like, and feels like. Paul says, before you and I this morning, there are two opportunities, two options. One is we can live our life under the vices of verses 19 and following. Or we can live our life under the control of the Spirit where we produce the virtues that are mentioned in verses 22 and following. Now, before we look at the fruit that's talked about here, I want you to notice a couple of things that are, I think, are of great importance. I want you to notice he begins in verse 22 by saying, "...the fruit of the Spirit." In other words, the only person able to produce these virtues in a garden variety believer like you and I is the indwelling Spirit of God. Paul here is challenging them with the very person who defines them as a Christian. Friend, what makes you and I a believer, one of the distinguishing characteristics of a believer, what is foundational to the truth that you and I are a believer is that we have within us the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. A proof text for that is Romans 8, 9. It says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, But if anyone, listen, does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. The Bible could not be any clearer. It takes the Spirit of God residing within to be the guarantee that that person is a believer, apart from, of course, the promises that are found in Scripture. But that is one of the distinguishing things. Secondly... Paul says the fruit of the Spirit. It's not fruits. It's fruit, singular. It's talking about the holy character of Jesus Christ. By the way, did you notice, and this is important, that when he talks about the sinful nature, he says the acts, plural, of the sinful nature. But he says the fruit... Is singular now why why is that so well the answer is because when it comes to the acts of the sinful nature not everybody does all those things all the time And there's a list of sins from which you and I can choose amazingly we're able to pick our poison And not everyone does all of these things all of the time. Fact of the matter is there are some people who have never gotten drunk. They may never have committed an overt act of sexual immorality. Now now that's not to suggest that they don't have a sinful agenda. But they've never done some of those things. That particular sins. But he says that the fruit of the Spirit is singular. Singular. And the reason he says that is because while you can pick and choose the sins you're operating in the flesh, when you're operating in the spirit, you don't pick and choose fruit. It comes as a package deal. There's one singular virtue, and that is Christ-likeness. And all nine of these virtues are interconnected one with the other. In other words, you don't have the option of saying, you know, yeah, yep. Yeah. today I'm going to show joy. This coming Tuesday, I'm going to show gentleness. A couple of days from now, I'm thinking about trying to love somebody. No, this is a, a package deal. There's not a list from which you and I can pick. When we walk in the Spirit, it comes as a package deal, and it's a combination of all of these virtues. And by the way, there are more than just these virtues here. Uh, This isn't the extent of Christ-likeness. He says in verse 23, against such there is no law, which means that there are more But what you find here is an important sampling of the most important virtues for the believer. It's the character of Christ working in you. The third thing I I think that's important to say is this. I think this is fruit that you can see. This is not something that's hidden. When you walk by a, a tree, a fruit tree, you're going to see fruit. And if a person is walking by the Spirit, living by the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, there will be recognizable evidences of God at work in their life. One of the proofs of true Christianity is a habitual manifestation of fruit. And again, that's not to suggest that Christians can't lap into sin. It's not to suggest that there can't be long periods of time where they are living in a state of fleshly behavior. But people are going to manifest the fruit of the Spirit. And while these virtues should mark every believer from the moment of salvation, they are most evident and most lovely in those who have walked with the Lord the longest. Now, as you look at these nine character qualities, these nine virtues, these nine fruit, the order, I think, is very significant. The first three are love, joy, and peace. Those are virtues that ripen our relationship with God himself. Patience, kindness, and goodness are fruit that ripen a person's relationship with others. We're going to talk about those three, Lord willing, next week. And then in two weeks, we're going to talk about faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, which are the fruit that ripen the mastery of ourselves. And so when you put all of these nine virtues together, it's interesting to me at least that these these govern the three critical fields of our life. Our relationship Godward, our relationship manward, and our relationship selfward. And I think it's interesting that they are in the order of priority. Priority. Our relationship to God, our relationship to others, and then finally, our relationship to self. Well, let's look at the first three virtues. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is first, love. Love is first because according to 1 Corinthians 13, it is by far the greatest. I think it's the most important character quality. And the word that Paul uses for love here is, as I'm sure many of you are aware, is the word that's most commonly found in the New Testament for love, and that is the word agape. It's a word that demands the use of your mind and your will. It's the principle by which you determine as you get up in the morning, I'm going to be a loving person. It's a choice. It's not a feeling, it's not an emotion, it's not a sentiment. We'll not take the time to turn, but I want you to just listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5. Write this down, verses 43 to 48. Because what you find here is a key passage in the Bible that gives us the meaning, I think, of this special kind of love. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor. And hate your enemy. But I say to you. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In order that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you. What reward have you? I mean that's. That's no big deal. Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? And if you greet your brother only, what do you do more than others? Again, no big deal. Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. See what Jesus is saying here? He's saying loving your enemies is an evidence that you are being like God. No matter what a person may do to you, you don't seek to harm them. You don't seek out revenge against them. You always are engaged in seeking their highest good. And again, it doesn't rest on feelings. It's an act of the will that chooses its object in spite of everything and through everything, regardless of the disappointing actions that person may have done towards us, we are going to continue to love them. Now, Having said that, it should be pretty obvious that this agape love is unnatural. We we can't really gin this up. We can't just, I'm going to love people. Trust me, that does not work. And the reality is not every Christian manifests this kind of love because they're not walking in the Spirit. They're not properly related to God's Holy Spirit. Who can love like this? Well, according to what Paul says in Romans 15.30, he says, I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your love to God for me. Friend, agape love is the product of one's relationship with God. Paul said to the believers in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 4.9, he said, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God... To love one another. Remember what Jesus told his followers? He said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for the other. So we have the Spirit of God working within us and we learn to love other people. And when God's Spirit pours his love into our spirit, then we're able to love other people. We have a, a flowing of God's love outward. And we need to be reminded of that. And by the way, that just, just to make an observation, that's why the Lord's table is so important. What do we do when we come to the Lord's table? Well, we remember the Lord Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made on our behalf as the single greatest act of love in the history of the world. And God wants us as his children to be controlled by his love so that we seek after God and we seek for every man and woman we meet their highest good. And he's poured out this love into our heart. We're to be marked by love. Paul says in Romans 5, 5, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Friend, if you're walking in the Spirit, you will love. You will love everyone. Not just the people in your most intimate circles. Not just the people you like. You'll love strangers. You'll love your enemies. And the reason you're able to do that is because you have God's divine love within you. You have his spirit within. You're walking in the spirit. And you know what happens when we begin to love other people? There's a second thing that comes right on the heels of that. You know what it is? Joy. Joy. See how Paul puts it? He says, but the fruit of the spirit is love. Joy. Joy. Now this joy is not that euphoria or simple happiness based on happenings. It's a joy in the Lord. It's a joy where we are able to say with total confidence, God is sovereign and God is in control. It's a joy that's based on the firm and immovable constant character of God. It's a joy that takes delight in the things of the kingdom. Such as hearing that someone's come to faith in Christ. Such as hearing that somebody's growing in their walk with God. It's a joy that can't be seen by the human eye. This joy is meant by God to transcend our heartaches, our difficulties, and the internal and external pressures that we all feel as we journey through life. It's not related to shifting circumstances. You know, for those of you who bothered, and I hope you did. You all did. I know. Everybody who got my email on Friday read it, so I probably don't even have to say it. But for those of you who have yet to read it, we talked about that. How it's easy to have an attitude of gratitude when things are going well. But when we hit a curve in the road of life, That's what gives our testimony to others. Validity and credibility. Friend, it's a joy unrelated to the shifting circumstances of life. It has nothing to do with whether you're alone or in a crowd. Nothing to do whether you're paid six figures or making minimum wage. It's not related to whether you have a positive or negative circumstance in your life. Whether your life is trouble-free It's that unflappable joy that enables us to overcome the world with all of its pressures and persecutions. It's the fact that God has just poured into us his spirit and it makes all the difference in the world. And I remember a few years ago now coming across a story that portrays this principle beautifully. It was told by W. Ross Foley, who was the pastor of a church in the Minneapolis area. And he wrote the following. One of the most alive and lovely persons I ever knew was Edith Pearson, an 88-year-old cripple who passed on to her reward a few months ago. When I knew Edith, she was in a home for the aged near our home in Southern California. I made a practice of calling there on a regular basis, and occasionally I took our son John along. The incident to which I refer to happened when John was about three. By the way, I speak from experience. Taking your kids to a nursing home can be fraught with danger, as you will find out. As we walked down the corridor of the infirmary, we stopped at an open door and greeted a woman who was seated in a wheelchair, bent over a table, trying to write with the most horribly deformed hands I had ever seen. She invited us in. Johnny, my three-year-old, took one look at her and said, Dad, does she ever have funny-looking hands? I hoped she hadn't heard, but she had. She replied, yes I do, don't I? Look at my feet, they're even funnier. We looked down and saw two shriveled hunks of flesh that used to be feet. In our subsequent visit together, we heard her story. Growing up in Chicago, she completed her schooling and took a job at the telephone company and began to work her way up the corporate ladder till she had worked her way up to a supervisor of a large number of Employees. Suddenly, in the prime of her career, it happened. Arthritis hit with a vengeance and began to cripple her limbs, crush her spirit, and smash her dreams. In short order, her spiraling career in management was exchanged for a nightmare in a wheelchair. At first, she did what we would expect she became bitter. Sour, cynical, and filled to the brim with self-pity, hatred, resentment, and hostility. Still professing faith in Jesus Christ, she could not reconcile herself to her awful fate. But then she changed. After two years of wallowing in her misery, watching her attitude degenerate from awful to unbearable, she did something about it. She decided to take seriously the claims of Scripture that Jesus Christ was actually living in her crippled, shriveling body. She began to let her awareness of Christ's new life soak into that part of her being where attitudes are formed. She applied his power to change her attitude and accept her lot and even to thank him for it and to make herself available to him in any way he might be able to use her. When I knew her 45 years after arthritis had smashed her, Edith was a veritable dynamite of life. Her beautiful, positive spirit of love was a legend in that community. Her joy was contagious, her disposition vivacious, although confined to that wheelchair till her dying day. She spent most of her day moving that beautiful right hand of hers across paper, scratching out letters to lonely missionaries, spreading her cheer and her love. And she had a lot of love to share because she shared a lot with me. Friend, that's manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. Coming to Christ is no guarantee of an easy life. In fact, oftentimes it's just the opposite. But it's a life that's filled with meaning and purpose. And when we allow God to work in our life, we can have joy. Friend, is it any wonder then that the very next virtue that Paul mentions is peace for this word denotes a sense of wholeness a sense of well-being that everything is well i love that hymn it is well with my soul it's the realization that jesus christ has abundantly met my needs, that he's my master. I'm loved, and the music of his joy sings within my heart. It's a tranquility of the soul. Remember what Jesus said in John 14, 27. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be afraid. And here's the reality the problem lies not in receiving Christ's gift of peace. The problem lies in our failure to rest and wait upon the Lord. Our ladies Bible study on Thursday morning is talking about that rest. That peace, that tranquility of the soul that can come to you. And he says there's a rest that is available. It's it's God's peace what's unfortunate is that because we live in a crazy society where this sense of well-being does not come naturally, the only way we can have that peace in this crazy, mixed-up world in which we live is to allow God's Spirit to produce it. It's not easy. The old sin nature and the flesh and the evil one are constantly trying to upset us. So what do we need to do? Well, friend, we retreat quietly to prayer. And as Paul says in Philippians 4, 6 through 7, we through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let our requests be made known to God. Now listen to what it says in verse 7. When we do that, it says the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard or garrison about you, your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And you know what that enables us to do? It it enables us to face life's greatest challenge, namely death. I love what John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist Church, used to say. He said, our people die well. I like that. Our people die well. And that's been remarkably true of Christians down through the ages as they've faced death. And again, where do we get this power from? Where do we get this strength from? Well, Paul says in Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace, now listen, and joy in the Holy Spirit. I love that. It's the work of God, the Holy Spirit, in your life. Now, let me ask this question, and then we're out of here. Is that what people would say about you? Is that how people would characterize your relationship to God this morning? That it's one of love... Love towards him that then reaches out in love towards others? Is it joy with what's God given you? Or or do you feel like, man, I can't believe it. I got shortchanged in life. Look at this rotten job I'm stuck in. Look at this rotten house I'm in. Or are you thanking God for it? And is there peace in your life? Friend, if you're walking in step with the Spirit, your life will radiate love and a deep-seated joy and a supernatural peace. Can I remind you that you and I are not victims? You know, if there's one thing that is characterized the last 10 years or so is everybody's a victim. Woe is me we don't have to go moping around and groaning because things aren't going the way we think they ought to do. We're we're not victims. God is in control. We're not victims. We're victors. And what we need to do is we need to live out the love and the joy in whatever state we're in, and then God will give us that supernatural peace. And you know what will give it to us? When we're walking in the power of the Spirit. You say, Doug, what exactly does that mean? Well, go back and check message number 19, okay? It was a few weeks back. It's all on the internet. You can, you can hear it for yourself. But we're going to talk about it even more in the weeks to come. Because you know why, and I've said it before, and it bears repeating again. The reason we need to hear these things again and again is because we have a tendency to remember what we ought to forget and to forget what we ought to remember. Let's remember we're not victims. We're victors. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time this morning in your word. This is such a a practical, helpful, convicting section. And Lord, we're thankful for the Spirit of God who can serve as our teacher this morning because we know that without him illuminating this passage of Scripture, we would never be able to understand it. Help us, Father, each and every today to walk faithfully in the Spirit so that our lives relentlessly are full of love, joy, and peace. Help us this coming week to put the power of the gospel on full display. And may our transformed lives be a witness to the one who has transformed us, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray towards that end in His name. And everybody agreed and said, Amen.